This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So engaged in the, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Um, as we think on these verses here, it's an interesting time to be a Christian. It's an interesting time, I think, just to be religious in general in our culture. Um, I see this even with my kids. My, my oldest, she's a first grader in, in, um, in school right now. And she comes home and, man, they learn so much more than, like, when I was in first grade, which is a long time ago, obviously. But I was learning, like, what is the color red and, you know, what is a square? And she's coming home and telling me about, like, um, chrysanthemums and, like, uh, chrysalis of butterflies. And she's talking to me about world religions and, and um, like, the U.S. Constitution. I'm like, really? First grade? This is amazing. And she goes a really good school. So she also comes home and, and they're going through a whole section on different religions. And she says, do you know, there are a lot of people that believe in this and this and this, and we are Christians because we talk about this. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's fascinating. That's impressive that you're learning all this. And, and I recognize that there is this like kind of subtle thing. Um, even as we're growing in our culture, the, the pre- and I think it's a good thing in one sense. It's a good thing to recognize the plurality of cultures. We live in a great society and country where there's freedom of things like religion. I think that's a good, I'd rather live in a society like that rather than having your house bombed out if you believe a certain thing. That we don't have to hopefully fear that you're going to get beaten on because of what you believe. I think that's a beautiful thing about our culture. But there's also um, a subtle pressure that everyone believes what you believe, so keep what you believe private. Let's respect and tolerate one another's beliefs. And again, I think there's something really to be said about respecting people no matter what they believe. But when it comes to your faith, keep it very personal. Keep it very private. And, and in a way, and in kind of an indirect way, it's, it's a reason why I have a problem with sometimes some of the Christian terminology we use. And if you use this, I'm not hating on you. I, I, might, love, I might not love you because I might not know you, but I love you in a certain sense. But things like personal relationship with Jesus. I got no problem with that. I, I, I love to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I think somehow when we think of uh, the relationship with God following Jesus in that way, we make it a very personal thing, like it's between me and Jesus, and it doesn't have to involve anyone else. It's something that just between me and Jesus, my faith, my personal, and I'll keep it at home. I'll keep it in my place of worship. And, and that sounds okay. The thing is, when we look at the scriptures, when we look at the Bible and, and see the lives that are described of how we're supposed to follow Christ, there's actually a very public aspect to them. There's actually a very public aspect of what it means to follow Jesus, that our lives, in a way, are meant to be lived on display for the glory of God. That there's a sense when we follow Jesus, people should notice People should notice there's a brightness. And hopefully people don't notice for the knuckleheaded things. Because Christians, just like other people, sometimes we do really knuckleheaded things, right? Hopefully we're not getting noticed for that so much. Like, uh, I'm not even going to mention examples because some of you might do them. So, um, but that's what we see here in today's passage, verse 27. So let me start by looking at this first. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul, he uses this word worthy here several times in many of the letters he writes to the churches. So I think it's worth exploring. What does, when he says, um, live a life that's worthy of the gospel, worthy means ascribing or giving worth. Worthy, it means giving worth to something. So when Paul is telling these people, and and in essence us, um, to live in a worthy way, he's saying, live in such a way 
that what we believe is of ultimate worth. And for Christians then, Paul's saying, live your life in such a manner that when people observe your life, when they see you, they see Jesus is big. That when they see the way you live your life, when they see the way you talk, when they see the way you just conduct yourself, wow, they see something really worthy there. They see a Jesus, an object of your life that's big, that's glorious. And then that's kind of ambiguous. If he just left it at that, you and I might be feeling kind of like, uh, what do I do with that? But Paul explains here what that ascribing worth looks like for the Christian and the church. And Paul, first, he says here, stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm in one spirit. Um, if you were here for the first message we gave in this series, if you weren't, you can find it online. But if you remember, we looked at the introduction of the letter, and, and we learned of the amazing diversity that made up this first Philippian church. You remember things like we talked about the wealthy businesswoman who came to know Jesus. We talked about the poor slave girl who was freed from her possessions to come know Jesus. We heard about the blue-collar workers, the blue-collar jailer who came to know Jesus, and, and this church in Philippi, it was just an amazing diversity of many different kinds of people. And, and this gospel at work, when you saw this new church, you saw a gospel, you saw a power of God that had the ability to unite people of very diverse backgrounds. You saw a gospel that was so big, you saw a God that was so powerful, he was bringing together people who had no other reason to be together. I love how one author puts it when he describes, he says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I just love that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not this cross. We're talking about the cross that Jesus actually died on, died for the sins of humanity. We would say, when we come to the cross, as different as we might be, we can be brought to one. As rich or as poor, as different colored as your skin might be, whatever background you might come from, how jacked up or how like beaver cleaver your family was, whatever your background at the cross, we can be made one while we're also still so diverse and making up so many different demographics. And basically the, the point is that Jesus looks really big when his followers walk in unity. Jesus looks really, really glorious and mighty and big when the people who say they follow him, even from a diverse uh, community of backgrounds, come together to be one. And in a, in a very obvious sense, it's kind of what we're doing here, even on Sundays when we come to worship. When we come to do this thing called worship, on Sundays, um, you see some of that in a very obvious sense. That... Um, <laughs> I remember, uh, this was a long time ago, we had someone come to our church, and they came in, and I knew, they actually worked with someone I know, like, third hand, second, third hand, and that person asked them, hey, I heard you visited the village, what did you think of it? They're like, oh, I really didn't like it. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I really didn't like it, because, man, there were so many different kinds of people there, it was just weird. There's like people in there like asking for money and there were people who look like I should ask for money. And, and, um, there were like people of all different backgrounds and people, I don't know what they believe, but like all, you know, different colors and, and, you know, like, and they were like upset about this. This, that's the reason why they told their friend, yeah, I didn't really didn't like that church. I'm like, praise God. <laughs> that's like affirmation. That that's fantastic. Cause there's something that should be when people look at the people of God gathering, but you're not able to put a label on it right away. You should be able to say, whoa, that's good. That means there's something at work here that's beyond just sociological factors. There's more than just demographic studies. There's a power that goes deeper. 
that's able to unite people no matter what the culture says divides. Amen? And in a city like ours right now that falls along so many divided lines, I think that kind of gospel is powerful. And it gives a great evidence for who God is. Our diversity, it points to the bigness of Jesus. Um, But like we've been talking about recently, guys, Village Church, we can't just get satisfied at what we see with our eyes right here. Because I'll tell you, it is really easy to come here and say, Ooh, I am part of a diverse church. Look how, man, people are, we can't label people. Everyone's different. This is great. Guys, it's too easy for it to just kind of stay there. And to have the appearance of greater reconciliation and unity when it's just kind of a surface thing. And I'm not minimizing what goes on here right now. But it's too easy for it to kind of just stay here and not actually penetrate the levels of where we walk together. Of how we live together. How we eat together. How we play together. And I think a lot of the the unity we talk about, um, it's got to be shown in friendships. Because you can come to worship on a Sunday, and you can come here to worship for years, and like never actually become friends with someone who's different than you. I mean, it's easy. And we're getting to the point where you can be pretty anonymous, come in and just kind of do your worship thing, and, and, and feel like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm growing in my appreciation of different cultures, and never really live that out with one another. And I think much of it comes down to friendships. And here's, you know, we just try to keep it real, right? Here's where I think the rub is sometimes because this part is easy, um, whatever that means. This, this part's relatively easy. It's the actual living that life together part that's a lot more challenging. And this is where I, I and this is where when I'm having conversation with people, I'm like, hey, you know what? What would it look like to take the next step and become actual more than just kind of church acquaintances, but people who like hang out together or maybe go watch a movie together or, or like eat dinner together? Or just call each other on the phone or email or, or you know, what? It, and, and the most common response I get is, yeah, you know what? That sounds great, but it feels so unnatural. It just doesn't feel like I, my friendships need to flow. Like my friendships, I, I want them to come organically. I, you know, I, w- I want to be able to, like, hang with someone. And, like, after 10 minutes, we're like, yo, we're, we, we've been, like, pros forever even though we just met, right? Like, I want that. And and I guess what I'm trying to encourage you is I I think that might happen, but the reality is that most often happens with people who you've already got much in common with demographically, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's place of background. If you're like born and bred in Hamden, you've got much more in common and you don't need that much to kind of unite you. If you're a particular ethnicity, you can kind of know each other and not even work that hard and feel like, oh, wow, we got a lot in common. Wow. Your parents were jacked up like that too. Me too. It must be a whatever thing. Um, all to say, we've kind of got to get beyond this idea that we want friendships that are natural and realize gospel friendships are often going to require feeling a little unnatural. It's going to require pressing into people that you don't have much in common with right away. It's going to mean sitting down with people and kind of talking and saying, wow. And in your mind, you're going, I do not know anything we have in common with right now. I don't even understand what she's saying. But guys, maybe a question we can ask ourselves, do your friendships, even in church, do they require the spirit of God present to happen? 
Do the friendships you have, whether in church or other, do they require something bigger than yourself to happen? Or is it just because you have something sociologically in common? And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying, like, don't have friends who either look like you or come from similar backgrounds. But I would suggest the gospel moves us beyond that. To display a unity with people who you maybe don't have much in common with, but that requires the power and presence of God to say, I'm going to do something here that no one else would be able to accomplish just because they're just because they hang together. Does that make sense? There requires a, a bigness of God. And, and I want to encourage you, don't underestimate the, the power of presence. Because sometimes friendships cross-culturally are not going to come right away. Comfort with someone else who might be a different culture is not going to feel natural. It might take a long while. It might even in your mind feel like, oh, this is just not working. And perhaps that's just some of the presence developing. Sitting together and letting God work in that. A lot of it just takes long, sustained presence with people. And on that note, I just want to give a really quick plug. We're talking about community groups at our church. And Sunday's fantastic. I love it. But for we, we do believe to take some of those um, journeys deeper following Jesus. We need to go into some smaller communities. Because this is not huge. But it's getting big enough. There's just no way you can get that significantly deeper with people. So we've got different communities. They're listed on the back info table. I want to highlight one. This is going to be starting this Wednesday evening, first week of June. Um, here at the church building, meeting at 6.30, dinner. Youth group meets as well. We're going to have dinner together. And then after that, we're going to have some time of just uh, discussion and prayer and fellowship and sharing. And our hope is that the group, particularly that meets here at the building, is going to be one that's a place where we can bring together folks of different backgrounds. So I want to encourage you to think about it, pray about it, perhaps consider coming to that and to take a step in those ways. That makes sense? Cool? Okay, so we see this idea to stand firm in one spirit. But we also see Paul describing as he continues what a life worthy of Jesus looks like. And he describes being with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One mind. That's an interesting phrase. And if you're thinking I'm making it up, it's straight from the Bible. One mind. Because for some of you, this image of one mind brings to like forefront your greatest fears of the church. Like you're, you see, hear things like one mind. You hear preachers say one mind. You're thinking, oh, okay. This is one of those like cult-like churches that wants everyone to like settle into group think. They want everyone to start dressing the same and they're going to start looking the same. They're going to start smelling the same because they get the same perfumes and they're going to start eating the same food. They're going to laugh at the same jokes. I'm not going to be able to be an individual. I'm going to have to fall into some sort of um, group think, group mode, group mentality. And, and I'm going to suggest that it's actually the opposite of that in light of what we just looked at about the unifying power of the gospel. Because, again, we're assuming that the gospel is so powerful that you will have extremely different people coming together under the banner of Jesus. So I don't think one mind here means like a monochromatic um, kind of everyone looks and sounds exactly the same. I think what it means, one mind, that we might be very different. That with the recognition that we're very different, the gospel leads us to deny ourselves for the sake of those that whom God is calling to love and serve on mission together. That maybe one mind means God is calling us to deny ourselves so that you can better be in community with people you're loving and serving as you're on mission together. And even that word, deny yourself, um, that's a really countercultural statement, right? To deny yourself. 
I mean, if you're coming to church and you're hoping that I would preach on how you can have a better day tomorrow and, you know, live your life, best life now, and God does, I mean, I I think that's part of it, but I think there's also a big part in the scriptures about denying yourself. I'd actually say it's a very un-American statement, you know, considering that our country, in in a good way, is based on this really fierce kind of individualism. Like, that's one of the pillars and strengths of our uh, country. I would say that's one of the things that's led this nation in great ways. But I think it can also be a challenge when it comes to understanding gospel implications. Because one of the public evidences that the gospel is really working in your life is a continual denying of yourself. It's a continual growing sense of saying no to yourself for the sake of something else. Uh, Verses like Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And and you see in in the verses here how this one mind is connected to mission. It says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So guys, to be one mind, it means die to yourself, to walk together with other people, so that you can make Jesus known. Dying to yourself is... Um, being a one mind, dying to yourself so you can walk with others so that you can make Jesus known. We're called to walk in unity for the sake of proclaiming Jesus. Um, it makes total sense to me why Paul talks about this because, you know, churches like ours and others, we like to talk about wanting to make Jesus more known, wanting to be more on mission together, wanting to proclaim Christ. But, but in my experience from what I've observed, um, one thing that will always undeniably kill a church's effectiveness on mission is when its people stop dying to themselves. The one thing that will stop a church community from continuing to proclaim Jesus, move together on mission, is when we start uh, stop asking questions, how can I die to myself here? And rather, what's, what's in it for me? Or that's not what I'm used to. Or that's not how it's always been. Or why are we doing that? That doesn't appeal to me. But guys, if we believe that our lives in church as a community of people who follow Jesus, if it's more than just supposed to be like a nice little get-together for Christian people, if we believe that this is so much more than meant to be than like Christian karaoke, I mean, if we believe that what we're doing here is bigger than that, that we actually exist so that Jesus would be more known through our lives, it has to require a growing sense of dying to each of ourselves. And, you know, I, I get, every so often I get churches contact me talking about how they can grow in mission and, and like kind of a, a consulting from afar. And a lot of times the biggest challenge with churches, they just don't, they, they don't want things to change. They want it the way it's always been. We, uh, I passed an article around to some of our leaders recently, and one of the things, it was a point about a lot of times churches don't move forward because uh, people don't want change. And they used an example of, you know, there are some churches, if someone new comes and sits in their chair, people get really mad. And I had one of our leaders sent back saying, man, I can't believe there's anyone like that. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you feel that. <laughs> Like, if you've been here for a while and you've got your bench, right? It's got, like, your imprint in it because you've been sitting there for so long. And you walk in and more and more people are coming to the village because more and more people are here about Jesus. And, and you're excited about that. But then you walk in all ready to get your Jesus on. And then you look at your scene, someone's sitting there. 
Well, oh, oh no, that's that, that. Don't they know that's my seat? I, I always sit there. That's that's my seat, and and it's silly. But often what prevents us from living fully on mission for Christ is we don't want to give up the things that we feel we're entitled to. And in churches, it looks like things like, oh, man, I, I, I don't like the way our music is now. I used to remember when it was a certain way and the songs that I admit, this is into my groove. You know, this was really helps me to worship Jesus. But that, does anyone worship Jesus like that? <laughs> or man... I remember when we used to have food in the back, <laughs> like real, real life situations. I remember we used to have like bagels and, and donuts. And now they're like expecting me to starve. And I walk all the way here and there's no sustenance from my belly. Or wow, why are we changing up things like this? We used to be this kind of church. Now it's feeling different. Now it feels like programmed or it feels like, I, I used to like the way we communicate things. Or why did we change times on that? Or why are our groups looking like this now? And, and I'm not trying to like be troublesome here, maybe just a little bit, but um, we have to realize, guys, that um, to live a life worthy of Jesus, to be of one mind, it will often mean asking yourself, do, does everything have to be my way? And if you're a human being, there are going to be some things as you're part of even a church like this, you're like, I don't fully jive with that. I don't like the way we do that. I don't like the way we pray. This is not real prayer. Real prayer is like yelling and screaming and like banging the floor. And for some of you, real prayer is like no one saying a single word out loud. <laughs> But perhaps to be part of a community that's bigger than yourself and perhaps the way that God's even wanting to work in your life is to try to give you gentle lessons to remind you it's not all about you. It's not all about you and the way that you want it. But for the bigger sake of proclaiming Jesus, can you buy in with something that maybe is not in your wheelhouse, but it's close enough that you can say, okay, we can do that because I see how God is using it to reach other people. Amen? It, 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 it's just essential, the sense of dying to oneself to be effective on mission. So we see a life worthy of Jesus marked by unity, humility. We see it's also marked by fearlessness. And verse 28 says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And guys, just a simple point, publicly proclaiming Jesus as your king, it's going to require courage. Publicly following Jesus in your life is going to require courage. And obviously, I could go to like the ISIS examples right now and like say, you know what? You know how courage looks? Those people who are being persecuted by ISIS and having their heads chopped off because they won't recant the name of Jesus. That's courage. Or like the Nigerian Christians who are being hunted down by Boko Haram. That's courage. Man, we should look to people like that. Those are the real heroes. And I would give a big hearty amen to that. I think that's a really big aspect of that. But I, I, I really believe that the Bible is not just for those courageous Christians around the world. It's for us as well. That being willing to sacrifice your life, it's not just for Christians halfway around the globe. It's the call for every follower of Jesus. And again, we live in a country where I don't think you have to fear being beheaded for your faith. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> Maybe call me wacky radical. I think that's a good thing. Um, but it's still going to require courage. 
and maybe courage, um, the courage that's required for us is getting over that fear of, of talking to your next door neighbor and letting them know that you follow Jesus. You know, maybe it's getting over that fear of, man, what are they going to think of me? I really don't want to be that wacky, like, um, stereotypical Christian that everyone pictures, like Ned Flanders. I really don't want to be Ned Flanders. But if I tell them I believe in Jesus, they're going to picture, Heidi, you know, they're going to they're picture that of me. I really don't want to be that. Or I don't want to be lumped in with all those judgmental bigots. I want to be like the cool Christian. But if I tell them I go to church, they're going to think I'm sorry. And maybe courage is starting to say, you know what? What's the worst thing that can happen if someone finds out a Christian? Maybe they think I'm an idiot. Maybe they think I'm a mental midget. Maybe they think I'm an anti-intellectual. Maybe they think I hate science. But perhaps those are some of the areas of courage that God is calling some of us to. Stop being so fearful of what people think about you and ask, what's the worst that can happen? My reputation? Maybe for some of us, courage might look like your workplace or your, your career. And uh, where, where society says, drive yourself, drive yourself, drive yourself, keep climbing that ladder, get the bigger promotions, give more and more hours, you know, kill yourself so that you can succeed, that you can achieve. And again, I'm, I'm a big believer in hard work. I think that's a good thing. I believe we should be excellent in whatever we're called to do. But perhaps there's a certain line that you need to kind of check yourself saying, is this really helping the glory of God? Or am I like going extreme to the point where my family is like suffering now? And the thing is, you don't see this till like years later when your little kids are like big kids. Because you think, oh, we'll make it. It's just for a season. And recognizing, you know, perhaps um, courage for me right now is saying, you know what? I know there's another opportunity for promotion or for advancement. But maybe saying no to some of those things so that I can invest in my, my biological family or maybe my church family. Because some of us, we get so driven by what's out. Again, I'm not putting a good or bad on work versus church. I'm not doing that. I don't believe in that. But at the same time, we can get so inundated with things that we have no time for anything else. When it comes to advance, maybe courage is saying, I'm not going to listen to the societal narrative that says my worth and identity is based on how many letters I can achieve behind my name. Or how many dollars I can get into my bank account. Or, or how many people look to me as their boss. I mean, for others of us, courage, and, and this one I think is pretty real, courage might look like not settling to be in a romantic relation with someone who's not a Christian. Yeah, I'm going to go there. <laughs> um, because sometimes there's this temptation, man, I don't want to be alone. I am like scared to death of being alone. That person's interested in me. Wow, he, he's got eyes for me. Wow, better than any like Christian guy. You know, this guy's great. He like, he's, he loves me. He's like, he's fascinated with me. He's like interested in me. Oh yeah, but I, I don't, I don't think he knows Jesus. Or I don't even know. And in love, in love and from many years of my own painful experience to suggest and to encourage you guys, maybe courage is saying it's better to be alone with God than to feel not alone with someone who doesn't know God. Ultimately, if your passion is the glory of God in your life, being with someone romantically who doesn't know God will, it will greatly impact your faith. It, it just will. And maybe for you, 
courage is being able to say, man, this is really scary, but I'd rather choose this path and acknowledge the Lordship of God over all of my life. Not just my one and a half hours on Sunday, but even my romantic relationships that I believe in God as Lord over these things as well. So, I mean, there's just a lot of examples of what courage looks like. And the reality is if you follow Jesus, you might be mocked. You might be mocked. I mean, you, you might lose opportunities for advancement in, in your career. You might be left alone, seemingly alone. But look at what Paul says. What, look at what he says following here. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, um, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Basically, Paul's talking about being blessed. And, and how do you and I usually talk about being blessed if we get into a certain school or if we get a, a, the, the check comes in the mail? Or we find a, a new housing situation. Or we find, you know, something really good happens in life. And I think that's very valid and appropriate. When good things happen in your life, you should praise God. He's the giver of all good things, right? We should give him thanks appropriately. But guys, for the Christian, being blessed, it goes way beyond just the good things you get. Being blessed is a radically different concept. Because what Paul is saying here is that if Jesus is supreme in our lives... Even being opposed because of our faith is a blessing and a sign of our salvation. That if you follow Jesus, even if people mock you to your face, that's a blessing. Guys, this is crazy. Because the way the world works is, if you're going through trials, if you're going through persecution because of your faith, wow, God must not be with you. Wow, if you're going through disease... If you're going through loss of job, if you're going through people stop friending you and they defriend you, if you're going through persecutions, wow, God must not be with you anymore. That's what the world says. But what the gospel says is the trials and the persecutions that you're going through may precisely be proof that God actually is with you. That's the insanity of the gospel, that the hard things in your life might actually be evidence that God is with you. And that he cares for you. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Contrary to a lot of belief, the blessed life is not just one where you get every prayer request that you thought of. Sometimes the blessed life is God reminding you he might precisely not give you some things, but because you get him. The worthiness of Christ. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It looks like walking with, loving with, serving, and doing life with those who are very different than you. You know, what unites us together is Christ. Um, a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus, it looks like having one mind, dying to ourselves, striving together to make Christ known. What's our motivation? Christ. 
What does it look like? It looks like standing with courage against all kind of oppressors, all kind of trials, whether it's supernatural or natural. What holds us together? What secures us? It's Christ. So, guys, the implications for our lives is it's really simple. I mean, hear me. I'm not saying easy, but it's really simple. Um, it's all about Jesus. It, it's all about Jesus. And what allows us to live the life that's um, worthy of Jesus is simply Jesus himself. What allows us to live the life worthy of Jesus is Jesus. So what that means for you here, practically, um, you might have a real difficult time walking with people who are different than you. It might be really hard for you, whether it's an ethnic thing or whether it's a class thing, whether it's a background. You might have just a real difficult time just hanging with and walking with people who are different than you. It might just feel totally unnatural. Or for some of us, dying to yourself I mean, who likes dying to yourself, right? You might be like, this is not working for me. I like myself. I don't want to die to myself. I want to live to myself. And, and you like your opinions. You like your preferences. You like the things that, the way that you think they should be. Or maybe for some of us, we just live in fear of what we feel we might lose if we follow God fully. And, and this is my suggestion. If, if you're struggling with that, how you change. I'm going to say, if you struggle walking with people who are different than you, walk with people different than you. <laughs> if you struggle in crossing boundaries, cross boundaries. If you struggle dying to yourself, try dying to yourself. <laughs> find ways that you're going to die to your preferences. If you find it really difficult to have courage, have situations where God is calling you to trust him and believe him in faith. And I'm going to tell you, try your hardest. Look at what the Bible does. Give yourself to it. Give yourself, give yourself to it. Because if you do it correctly, here's where you're going to come. You're going to hit a point where you're going to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. And you're going to, your face is going to hit the ground. You're going to be like, what Jesus is calling me to do is beyond me. This is beyond my ability. Exactly. Exactly. And what that does when you get to the point when you recognize, I'm way not loving enough. I'm way not able to love people who are different than me enough. I am way too selfish to die to myself. I like things the way I like it. Oh, I am way too scared to be courageous in this situation. I don't want to lose this or that. That's not the worst place to be because when you get on your face, that's going to draw you to Jesus. Because you're going to need someone who's able to do what you're not able to do. And as you worship him. As you press into Jesus, you're going to learn this Jesus Christ, who you talk about the difficulty being with people who are different than you. Think about how it is to be the perfect savior and come to a world full of broken, sinful people. That's different. The person that you feel you had the least in common with, you have a lot more in common with them than Jesus did with us. But he came to be with us. When you struggle then with dying to yourself and you're like, man, who can do this? Jesus. <laughs> That ultimately it's not about just you dying to yourself. It's about worshiping the Lord and Savior who had every right to everything. When Satan came and tempted him, eat the bread, be worshipped, fall, have everyone take care of you. He had every right to say, yeah, I'm Jesus. <laughs> I'm the king. Yeah, why should I suffer like this? Why should I struggle like this? And yet he chose to die to himself. Ultimately to the point of death. He didn't choose his own preferences. He chose God's will because of love for us. Ultimately, when, when Jesus had every reason to just stop this crazy thing called the cross, 
even to the point where the night before it describes him in the garden praying and weeping and saying, God, is there any other way? Can this cup be taken away from me? God, Father, is there any other way? And even on the cross crying, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just an utter agony. Guys, sometimes we think Jesus is like a robot. Like he didn't give a rip. He just came, okay, cross, good cross. Oh, resurrect again three days. And then we forget he's also fully God, but also fully man. And these are real choices and real decisions and real struggles and real temptations. Yet in the end, he didn't choose the way out. He chose the courageous path to say, I will go to this cross for these people who need me. So guys, when you hit your limit, when you hit your limit of love, when you hit your limit of ministry, when you hit your limit of courage, I'm going to suggest that's not the worst thing because it gets you on your face and says, I need someone bigger than me, and that's Jesus. Let me ask you to stand with me as we respond to that. And that's what we're going to do right now as we come to the communion table, as we pray.